0: How many of us are young? (laughs) So I dare say you'd be interested in some conversation that might affect young people. When I was a little guy, probably about that high, 12 I guess, A lot of my life was spent at boarding school, but during the holidays my brother and I ran wild because we lived in country-type areas. And One of the most exciting times of our life, we thought, was how to catch a monkey. I lived in South Africa, so that's understandable. Do we have monkeys in this country? Only in the zoo, yes. Okay. Well, you wouldn't go and catch a monkey there, I'm sure. Do you know how to catch a monkey? Okay. You find a little pumpkin and it's called a temptation pumpkin. And you drill a little hole around about that size. And in it you push seeds and other things that monkeys might like to eat. And then you anchor it somehow to the ground so that it can't be carried away. Monkeys are not only inquisitive, but they take anything they can. And When the monkey comes to the temptation pumpkin, she or he smells the little hole and says, there's something in there that I want. I'd love to have what's in there. And the monkey puts his little hand in there, and he begins to catch those things. And he's just ready to go when you stand up. And of course, he gets a fright. And what would you do if you were caught with your hand full of sweets that you shouldn't have, you would drop the sweets and make as if nothing had happened. Well, you see, monkeys can't do that. When they've got it, they want to keep it. And so they try and pull their hand out of the temptation pumpkin, but it won't come out. So when you're tempted, do you know what I mean by tempted? I'm sure uh, many of the older folk are never tempted. (laughs) And young people, uh, you've got a, a test tomorrow at school. You're going to do spelling. But this evening, there's a lovely program on the television. And you're tempted to watch television rather than revise your spelling test. That that's not the big problem, but it's when you go the next day and you think, ooh, I'm never going to know what the test's about, but you see that Mary, who is sitting next to you on this, and and you see that she's done all her homework, and what are you tempted to do? To look over Mary's shoulder and you'll get the spelling correct. Or when mummy, Nan, puts on some cakes and sweets, planning for that evening, and says, now please don't touch this until after dinner. And you are tempted to taste the sweet. Well, they won't know how many sweets there are. Uh, That's not a guilty look that you have. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, temptation is always seen about doing something or being tempted to do something that's wrong. I'm hoping when the older folks are listening, if they're listening, that we'll be talking about Jesus' temptation and what he, according to Luke and others, went through when, they, when he was in the, in the desert area, in the wilderness. So um, shake my hand if you promise you'll never be tempted. <laughs> Rather frighten them when he's for your thoughts in song. I imagine that six weeks without any form of sustenance and in these perils of the wild could be testing for anyone. I imagine that a, an extended period in anyone's life when they are seeking of the way forward to be without support and any sustenance of whatever kind is a very daunting experience. It seems to me that the story of Jesus here is rather compelling. It can only be a story that would have come, as I imagine, him having been there all alone, when in the company of his friends and companions, he told them the story, his experience. Before the time came when he called them to himself, when Luke begins that part of the story. In chapter 5 up until then the journey of Jesus has been a personal one one might call it a solitary one and even following this experience that he had as he searched in his own mind what might be the purpose and the action and activities in which he would engage in for God the Father. Luke has a very interesting way of approaching the stories of Jesus. And sometimes they are best understood, it seems to me, when one looks at the the frame, the framework in which the story is placed. This one in Luke chapter 4 is preceded by the stories and the accounts of John the Baptist and what John and Jesus had to say and do together in chapter 3. John himself acknowledges that he is not the one, even though many people were hoping he might be. For various reasons, spiritual and possibly even political and societal, but that he was pointing away to one, in his words, whose sandals I am not fit to tie. So he is pointing to one who is beyond all that he has tried to encapsulate in the message that he himself, as a, des- as a desert or wilderness prophet, has brought among the people. The other side of the story has the frame of Jesus attending church in his hometown, where he takes the opportunity to read the Scriptures from the scroll on that day from Isaiah chapter 61, and then says to the people, to their amazement and to their deep, Wow, is this really what Isaiah is getting at for us today? However, he makes what one might call the cardinal error of the preacher, to say that this God who is inclusive of all, on the occasion when there was famine, sent his prophet to those who were not of our kind the widow of Zarephath, to Naaman the Syrian who had leprosy. And with fury they wanted him thrown over the cliff. Not in the synagogue, not in the town, but over the cliff. So the contrast as Jesus comes into this six-week period of pondering what it is that the Father is looking for in His life and His ministry is framed on the one side by that one or that which exalts Him and on the other side by those of His own kind who reject Him to clear his mind as to which direction his life should take, required then and possibly even requires today, a time of reflection and a time of withdrawal, to put one's own mind as close as possible to the mind of God rather than the babbling minds around you with all sorts of views and attitudes. It strikes me that the three so-called temptations, and I like the version in the so-called Good as New translation, which I'm comfortable reading because Archbishop Rowan Williams says that it is a translation of extraordinary power, so therefore really worth a read. That translation doesn't put the blame, as it were, although I'm going to go that way myself in this uh, little talk, doesn't put the blame on some external force or person who comes and says, if you are. But of the inner voice, of the struggle within himself, if I am the Son of God. The one route to take is the, interest, the self-interest route. Hunger is no hurdle when you can turn rocks and stones into bread, even though it's not the way in which the Creator works. However, it is powerful to take that position and use that position to one's own advantage the second route is the route of what might be called the popular support here are the kingdoms of the world here you can stand as if you were the supreme one and everyone bows claps cheers cheers and shouts your name populism and popular support is a tremendous temptation and the first, and the third one that luke puts into his order of the three is the root of self-grandeur the psalm where the psalm 91 often is quoted you're on the pinnacle of the temple but cast yourself down and his angels will bear you up no need to worry you are grand and you do not you can do as you like but our story doesn't put it so much in the inner mind, but what what might call the outer voice—the voice that comes from beyond—the voice clearly that will not give Jesus primary honor. Who will not be willing to acknowledge that he is God's premier messenger? And Luke's story seems to me is written and made available to his faith community and then into other generations who dare to take it to heart, how to assess their own role in being bearers of good news, as Jesus took on. In this story, the emphasis is on if you are the Son of God. I like the commentator who suggests that the stronger word, because if God is supreme and all things are in God's hands, as Jesus suggests by his turning to Scripture each time to rebut that, uh, in, that temptation, the stronger one is, since you are the Son of God, you know it. You have this position. You have this authority. So why not go this route or that route or the or the third route? And Jesus is the one who says since I am, I will do it God's way. But the rub comes for us when we want to apply this kind of thought to our day and our circumstances. For we here are gathered as a body of Christ, alongside of other expressions of the body of Christ in our town. And we might well be saying to each other, since we are the children of God, since we are the disciples of Jesus, since we are the bearers of God's good news, what are the directions for our action? Are we gathered in worship for our self-interest? Each one or even as a group, or a group of groups, concerned about our views, our preservation, and our promotion. Since we are the children of God, to whose popularity do we appeal? Could there be a culture of conspiracy to keep everything among ourselves, to make sure that everything is done our way, to keep things the way we want them? Since we are the children of God, is there among us or in us the grandier sense of being the special ones who assume that what we want is what God wants. It's appropriate, therefore, that as we go into a six-week period of 40 days of Lent, that it is headed up by this story of, about Jesus, and maybe applying to our story, how shall we clear our common mind as to the direction that God is moving? Among us? With each other? and in the town, in the country, and in the world in which we live. Who are we? Let us pray.